Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr. Putin. I am a fighter, and not a fighter. I don't think I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day there, Mark Kenny, with another episode of Democracy Sausage, which, as you know, comes each week, each and every week indeed, from the studios of the Australian National University. And uh, really glad that you could spend a bit of time with us again this week. I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Maria Teflaga, political scientist and senior lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations. Maria, welcome. Hello, Mark. Hi, everyone. Now, I thought we, what we should do today, um, perhaps a bit different, uh, rather than bringing in a guest, just have a bit of a chat about, I guess, some of the big issues. There's some, a lot of stories around at the moment, some some really big ones, which really raise some some questions about about our governance, about our politics, some of them which date back to the previous government, which doesn't loom all that fondly in the memories of many, um, as as we can say, if only from the election itself, but uh, but certainly from some of the stories that have come out since, having five ministries, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Who could be, forget the five ministries? Who could forget it? But, but we see another echo of that administration with a story that's come out in the last 24 hours, really, um, just, just yesterday as we record this. And this is the story, the audit office story about a $2 billion health funding program uh, that is called the Community Health and Hospitals Program, CHHP, uh, set up in December 2018, which is not that long before the 2019 election, and which then dispersed quite a lot of money, Maria, um, in, in a fairly unorthodox way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, I mean, I guess the hint is in the sort of community title there. Mm. Um, which, a bit like the community sports grants that's and these right. sorts of things. Exactly, exactly. And um, uh, sadly, I don't can't think of any health-related words that rhyme with um, rorts, and I know that's a bit... Um, we'll get to it. No, well, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's sort of to trivialise this, but this is actually this is actually an outrageous story, right? This is stealth health, I'm going to call it. <laughs> stealth health. Okay, fair enough. You've heard it here first. I mean, if we think about it, there's sort of two things here, right? So this report that the ANO, ANAO sorry, has written is, is quite scathing. Um, so, for example, it says that the report found that there was a warning from the Australian government solicitor that there was no legislation that could be relied on to authorise the expenditure. And the response of the health department was that it would proceed to execute these grants 
anyway. And it noted in its advice to the minister that there may be adverse commentary from the ANAO um, and any parties exposed to the expenditure. So basically what this boils down to, for those of you playing at home, is that there is quite likely some legal question mark over the legality of this spending in a similar way that there was over the spending of the sports rewards. But here we're not really talking about dunnies at sports fields, right? We are talking about people's health being disproportionately redirected to marginal electorates. You yeah. know, it says that 45% of these projects went to marginal electorates. And when we actually look at the distribution of poor people across this country, they are actually overwhelmingly concentrated in safe seats, in National safe Party elections. seats yeah. and Labor Party seats. So this is just disgraceful. Mm. It is. It's just another example of uh, of of the way systems have broken down. Propriety has been yeah, has taken a back seat. Politics has taken over governing decisions. Uh, it says of the program, executive oversight, risk and fraud management were deficient. Health did not seek to advise the government whether national partnership agreement project selection was aligned to CHHP objectives. Projects funded under grant agreements were designed, assessed, established, and managed in a manner that was was largely inconsistent with the Commonwealth grant rules and guidelines. And um, I read somewhere else in one of the media reports that the department was actually finding out in some cases who had been successful in receiving these grants that were being decided by executive government. They were, the, the department, that is bureaucrats, were having to find out by reading the media. That's see, right. I that's mean, right. What they're supposed to be implementing and, and funding. You yeah. know. I mean, this is... This is actually similar kinds of breakdowns in the way that the APS is effectively administering its its duties to what we kind of saw in the RoboDebt saga, which is, or saga or the scandal, right, which is essentially a decision is being made within political offices. The bureaucracy is not always aware of what the actual decision is or it is seeking to find a solution to, you know, a political problem that is not always on a firm legal basis. And, you know, we don't really know what the full implications of this spending uh, was. We don't really know what projects lost out, for example, um, Mm. and how meaningful or what kinds of funding essentially was underwritten by this kind of program. But we are talking about people's health. Like it's not inconceivable that there were like real material, perhaps profound impacts on Mm. people's lives as a result of a a, a complete breakdown in what we kind of call the chain of delegation and the chain of accountability. And so this isn't just another pork-barreling story. This this is yet another giant flare um, warning that something is very wrong in the way the the sort of norms and even the official rules about how money is supposed to be spent via Section 96 of the Constitution are, are being undermined. Yeah. And we shouldn't forget, really, that this is at the same time, this is running parallel with the aforementioned and long-remembered sports rorts community grants program as well. Exactly. So this is running in tandem in a different funding line and a different portfolio, but using the same abuses of process to use effectively to use public dollars for campaign purposes. That's what it amounts to. A government 
buying favors in a sense, uh, building up its stocks, um, uh, currying favor from voters by being able to put money into certain electorates that it sees as, as, as politically advantageous. And of course, we know with the sports sports uh, saga, which was you know going at full tilt in early 2020 when those revelations came out again from the Australian National Audit Office, that the you know, we, we know that the colour-coded spreadsheet eventually uh, emerged. Uh, we don't know whether there's been a colour-coded spreadsheet in this case as well. Yeah. It, 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 it's reasonable to imagine that it's that's possible. possible. I mean, some criteria was being used which were, which was you know, were, were political um, rather than administrative in terms of the best allocation of these dollars. So it's really quite astonishing to think that, and $2 billion, it's, it's quite a bit bigger. Yeah, it's it's a lot of money. I mean, it it sort of underlines the fact that what we've actually kind of seen is a is a breakdown of of governing and um, what we kind of call in political science like the the mediatization of politics, which is essentially mm. where political communication or campaigning uh, prerogatives sort of subsume other processes of government. Right, and here we would just be thinking about the correct and legally firmed basis of spending public dollars. And it is actually related to that other big story that is floating around, which is the the PricewaterhouseCooper scandal around consultancies, right? Because both of these stories speak to the hollowing out and de-skilling and um, cowing of uh, the public service. And for those of you that are not from Canberra and, and don't really think the public service is is very interesting or, or important, I mean, in essence, in our political system, the way it is designed is that we have our, we elect our politicians to do politics and to have arguments and to basically set directions using ideological heuristics or preferably evidence-based policy, right? And then it's the public service job to essentially work out how to administer these things, how to implement them, how to evaluate them, and to offer advice to government about um, how to achieve those goals in a way that spends money well, that actually serves the people, and is crucially actually legal. And what these scandals keep revealing is a, a breakdown of that sort of, you know, frank and fearless advice model that we've all been told is the supposed to be this relationship between our elected political elites and our non-elected bureaucratic elites. And we're actually seeing it kind of fail on multiple fronts. Like we're not necessarily seeing the right kind of cautionary advice in place. That is in part because it's being crowded out in some circumstances by consultants. And that might have occurred because the public service has actually lost the skills to offer that advice or worse, has lost the skills to assess the quality of the advice it's being given, which is actually far more serious if you think about it, right? You don't even know you're being given crap because you don't have the skills to understand Mm. that it's crap, right? And you've paid you know, millions of dollars for for the privilege. So that's the sort of advice side. But then we're also kind of seeing that the public service is perhaps taking its role as responsive implementers in some cases a little too seriously and not pushing back and saying, 
well, you know, that's impractical and that's illegal, Minister, right? You know, um, and, and, and that is actually truly, that's really disturbing because that's, that we're talking about the bones of things, you know. We're not talking about surface level stuff here. No, that's right. And that's a slide, right? Once you start that slide and you don't do anything to arrest it once these revelations come out, then you were in serious trouble. I mean, you are, you're in the process of significantly transforming the very basis of our governance and our politics uh, and what people can expect, the the procedural fairness, the 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 policy rigor that needs to be associated with the expen- with the raising and expenditure That's of, right. uh, of 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 taxpayers' funds. Well, yes, it's, it essentially leads to like a clientelistic mm. spoils sort of system. You know, you yeah. know, elect the blue team, elect the green team. You know, and you and you and you descend into this kind of relativism as well, where where because. And we hear this in 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 kind of um, regular discourse a lot. Oh, everyone does it, you know. I mean, we've long had this culture in Australia where we say, oh, you know, trouble with elections is no matter who you vote for, a politician wins. But the thing is, we've had a sound public service, we've had a rule of law, we've had objectivity in in policy development and and delivery uh, through a very significant public sector that has been independent and honourable. There have been mistakes made, of course, and there have been malfeasance from mistakes. time to time. Yeah. Um, there is always a corruption thing you need to 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 cover off. It wasn't that long ago. It, literally, think about this. It wasn't that long ago that we used to hear people, when, when the discussion about anti-corruption commissions came up, one of the defences you would hear at the federal level was that there was no corruption in federal politics. And, and frankly, it almost flew as an argument. It, it, it basically got... Opponents of a, a national anti-corruption commission, it basically got them through that argument for a good many years because there weren't significant endemic cases. There might have been the sporadic this or that, but there wasn't endemic corruption that could be pointed to that had been uncovered at any point. Um, that 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 sort of sat in the public mind, not like we had seen with with planning laws and 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 gambling money and so forth at the state and and, and municipal level. Um, it had been it was arguable that that we had this very strong public service and these very strong uh, laws and protections and an ethos that right. that was that was understood and bought into by by all the major parties now we have a situation where we're seeing a number of these things come up now and you know sports rorts is one and this is another the pwc scandal um absolutely outrageous a function of a whole process and as i say you can end up with a situation where people get a bit blase about that as well and they say oh well you know uh, they're all they're, you know they're all in it for themselves you know senior public servants uh, politicians almost like a fatalistic throw your hands up in the air and don't do anything about it no no this needs to be addressed in a very muscular very active way because, uh, as you say, well, we, we could just descend into into a different country altogether. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. There's like several issues that are sort of raised in what you kind of say. Like, and so one of the kind of interesting headline findings from the AAS, for the Australian Electoral Study, for example, is that even though people's trust in politicians, in political elites, 
declined and has kind of recovered a little bit. You know, broadly speaking, people's trust in the efficacy, right, so procedural fairness, that they will be treated the same way by government, has remained contrastingly relatively stable. But these sort of succession of scandals around implementation, the legal basis of funding allocated, and things like sports rorts where it seems like one rule is applied to one set of citizens Mm. and then, you know, resisting, for example, the Anti-Corruption Commission was so corrosive because it really just sort of said there's one set of rules for one group of people and another for another group of people, right? You know, that that really violates this myth we have in Australia about the fair go and and fairness. And, you know, you, you raise this question of an ethos and I do think many public servants still feel this really strongly, right? But, you know, what has essentially kind of happened is a very long-running process that began actually in the 1980s with the rise of what we call new public management. And what it has sort of done is subtly shifted around the incentive structures. So, you know, public servants were no longer appointed for life, um, essentially, um, you know, it was very difficult to sack them and um, and replace them. And that created some pathologies, right, lack of responsiveness being the primary one. Um, Sorry, and, just say that again, under-responsiveness. Yeah, yeah, yeah a lack of, of – both political parties felt that public servants didn't respond enough. And, yes, minister – is a, the classic example of of that kind of problem, right? Yeah, sort of like a cultural in- inertia almost. That's uh, right, Sort yeah. of a, uh, an inability to kind of move quickly and uh, exactly. a lack of dynamism in the policy advice coming exactly. forward and so forth. Exactly. And so Australia's solution to this, which was really innovated by Labor, was to introduce political staff. And that's because in 1972 they simply didn't trust the public service which had been running the government for the Liberal Party and the coalition for 23 years to to be objective. And so mm. they brought in political staff and and people could kind of see the usefulness of political staff. And and they and they are they can be very useful in the sense that it does insulate public servants from politicization in essence. And you know, you you create this sort of these people whose job it is is to do politics to think politically. And you create a, like a healthy tension between the public service and these political staff. Like that's the idealized version of how it's supposed to go. But there we have a couple of problems, right, in our system. And the first is that staff are really outside of all of the normal mechanisms we have for scrutiny and accountability. So it breaks that chain of delegation. That well, I it's a really critical before. point, this. I, I think what we'll do is we'll take a break and come back yeah. because I want to I go to that point about the, the responsibility of ministerial staff and also of public servants. Mm-hmm. And we can talk more about Let's that. Let's that. just take a quick break and be back in a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. 
you can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, we were talking, Maria, about ministerial staff and that accountability line. I think it's a really interesting one because, uh, as you're saying, uh, they sort of exist in this kind of nether region. I mean, ministerial responsibility is an absolutely fundamental tenet of our, our Westminster system, and ministers are responsible to the parliament. The executive is responsible to the parliament. The parliament's responsible to the people. And, of course, the public servants who provide uh, the service and advice to executive government, uh, they do so uh, according to a public service act and and are answerable and there are very strict uh, laws and accountabilities. But then you get this manifestation that sort of sits in between these two things. They're, public, they're, they're, they're paid on the public purse. They're ministerial staff. They answer directly to the minister. The minister doesn't seem to be responsible in practical terms for their mistakes. We've seen this in a number of uh, instances where ministerial staff have overstepped their authority. And we've seen a tendency really, in my view, and I've spoken spoken about this before, a tendency for the senior levels of the public service, going back to your point about uh, making it easier to get rid of particularly senior public service and de- departmental heads and the like, you've seen this sort of morphing of departmental heads and senior public servants into kind of ministerial staff. Everyone's suddenly interested in keeping the minister happy because everyone's job relies on the minister. And you've got this group who have a lot of sway in the process, senior advisors, um, policy advisors in particular areas, they're not answerable to the parliament and they're not answerable to the public service. Yeah, so political staff are, are, are really convenient for elected elites because they can kind of do a lot of the things that that you said around shielding the minister mm-hmm. from certain kinds of knowledge. But they can also, like, there's, there is a positive side to it as they well. Exercise, the thing is, though, sorry to cut you off, yes. but they exercise ministerial authority. Well, I they're mean, not they, supposed to, I right? know, but they but do. But in practice, we, have, we know that that has happened. Well, it, no, it, I think it happens on a, on a regular Probably, basis at yes. some level. I'm not saying that they all of them go beyond their remit or whatever, but what I'm saying is that in their dealings with senior public service, they speak for the minister. Um, in their we, yeah, dealings which is with what the, they're not supposed to, but you know, we we kind of know anecdotally that that happens. Well, that's yes, right because yes. the ministers in the in the house, you know, in the, on on the floor of the house, or the ministers in meetings, and the advisor who handles, uh, let's say, one particular area of of health policy is talking to the department of secretary or or one of the you know policy heads in that area and explains what the minister needs, what the minister wants, what the government is planning to do here. Effectively, they're they're operating with delegated power, and this is this is pretty much central to what they do a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, um, and and I think I think that's not necessarily a problem if they were brought properly into that sort of chain of of accountability. Because, like, why has this situation emerged? Right, like, it's not just that it's politically convenient; it's that the government governing is so complex compared to yeah. what was expected. Uh, you know, in the nineteen, well, even in nineteen eighty three, for example, right. And so, so you've actually had like a series of processes shift incentive structures within the the APS, and so part of it is that it's easier to place the, the sort of most senior mm. levels of the of the um, of the public service and also there's been a really strong narrative really um, strongly favored in large part by the coalition that sort of ideologically is often opposed to a public sector 
because that aligns with, you know, the sort of neo-right, neoliberal turn of the 1980s, think Thatcher and, and Reagan, who ironically often increased the size of government whilst talking down government. Um so there's sort of that. And and I mean, and it sort of reached its crescendo, I suppose, in that speech that Morrison gave to the Public Service Board just after his election in 2019, where he basically said, you are implementers. Yeah, we do the, we do the policy we, exactly. and the ideas, you do the implementation. And we see that in this scandal we've just seen here, right? There's this, this health uh, program. Uh, effectively, their idea was to dole out all this money and dole it out against criteria that were essentially politically advantageous as they assessed them, and the, and the, and the department playing catch up. And what do we find out about it? I mean, it's twenty twenty three, exactly. And we find out about this that was going on in twenty eighteen. It's, I mean, it's it's been found out by one of the proper and and more rigorous audit processes that we have built into the system, which is the Australian National Audit Office, and, and that's great. And that's pretty much how we found out about sports sports as well. Yeah. You wouldn't call it timely though, would you? I mean, there's a whole no. term of government, of that government, that that prevailed at that time. And bearing in mind how close the 2019 election actually was in the end, you know, uh, Labor went in as the hot favourite and came out as the, still in opposition. Yeah, yeah. Um, how much did these sorts of programs, the cumulative effect of sports sports, and now we have, you know, stealth health. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know it's pretty weak, but it's best I've got at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it's kind of hard to know, right? From a measurement perspective, we would probably say that it might be noise because it's just intangible. But I think what is kind of... Not well, in marginal seats is not. Well, yeah. Well, not, that's, not for a local that, member who can stand up and say, true, I've just secured true. you 200 but or just, $20 million dollars for this or that. I guess, no, that's true. I mean, I, I like I accept that argument, but it always remains to be seen, like, what what do voters actually hear? So I'm not saying, I'm not saying that it is tangible or intangible. I'm saying it is really difficult to really yeah. know. I right? know, but you know. The, the science on this is is. is Problematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like we still can't measure whether or not agenda effects on reporting, like headlines and public opinion. Like that is still very difficult to measure, and that's easier for us to measure than one-off spending announcements, for example. Right. And it's it's in, as we know, it's and we've discussed this before. It's also quite difficult to attach an election result to any one thing, particularly if you think about it nationwide. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I remember thinking about this and writing a little bit about it back in 2007 when we were trying to assess what was the reason that Howard lost that election, you know. Was it work choices? Was it Rudd's NBN plan? Was it climate change? Yeah. Uh, was it just simply the fatigue of the government, you know, the the sort of its time factor? For, for different voters in different places, there were different emphases placed on those things and there may have been other reasons yeah, absolutely. You know, as well. So Ab no, it's the absolutely. aggregate of those things is actually quite hard to unpick. I agree. I'm sure it has had it has had an effect and it's and and these effects are, are adverse. But you know, like it sort of boils down to we've actually really damaged a part of our political system whose job it is is to sort of be the professionals in the room, to temper wilder ideological ideas because, you know, I mean, they're called ideologic ideologies for a reason. They structurally have a lot in common with other belief systems mm. because they work off principles, right, first principles, and make a lot of assumptions about human behaviour, which decades of psychology and economics and other and neurobiology show 
don't bear out in reality. Mm. So it kind of matters that people know that, well, we tried that 20 years ago and it actually doesn't work yeah. or that's illegal or that's a terrible idea. You know, you could achieve something similar like this. And that's really what we're talking about here. And it goes to this ethos thing. So there are plenty of people who still believe in this ethos, but the sort of structural institutional things that protect that, that reproduce that at all levels of the public service, providing that protection to the public good and to public spending is is withering away on the vine, right? And it kind of is a nice segue to the other thing that we wanted to talk about, which is the Ben Robert Smith case. Well, that, true, but I just want to, just before we go to Ben Robert Smith, yeah. just, just stay with this for w- one second longer, and that is just this notion about senior public servants and, and their changeability now. We see quite commonly when governments come in, they will replace sometimes a whole raft of, of departmental heads. Um, and as you were saying, you know, pu- public service, one of, one of its great attractions for, for many people getting into it was the job security. It was very stable. We know Canberra's a kind of an industry, you know, what a company town and the company happens to be government. And uh, there was career progression, uh, quite good pay compared to average weekly earnings that could be earned and so forth. A lot of, a lot of things about it that were attractive, right? And, but that job security, an absolutely key thing, and and the fact of it wasn't just about attraction, it was about having an incorruptible public service. Right? What yeah. we've actually got now is a sort of a hybridization process where governments on both sides, but particularly the, the last government, was inclined to move public senior public servants, departmental heads in particular, out of jobs and put their own people in. And you get this behavioural change that you can kind of see manifesting in these scandals as they come forward, robo-debt being a great example, where government, where, where, the, where the senior most public servants are not giving frank and fearless advice, which was the, you know, the sort of the idol that uh, we, we, we always hear about, because going back to my point before, they become a bit like the senior ministerial staff. Yeah. They become people who are sitting in the minister's office a lot and reaching agreement with the minister on policy directions, on program delivery and so forth, that the government likes. And that is not what a public service is meant to be doing. And luckily, uh, Dr. Glenn Davis, who's now the head of Prime Minister and Cabinet and who has been on this podcast, is well aware of this. And I can say that because he said it on this podcast. You know, we had him talking about Mm. uh, this politicisation by stealth of of the public service. Uh, and uh, you know it was something he was quite worried about. So uh, one hopes that you know he's 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 well aware of that and 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 pushing forward with it. I mean, we can only hope that this this sort of storm of scandals um, is the right sort of time, the right critical juncture for a, for government to move on the their public service agenda because they're already interested in this, mm. right? Like that's something that they've already sort of said. And, and Albanese as a as a politician has always strongly supported um, APS capacity yes and you know and I think came to value it when he was um, a minister in in the in the previous government and it sort of goes back to like essentially it boils down to this the decision premise right the incentive structure that public servants senior ones in particular are operating under has changed and the balance has gotten out of whack it has and so it's not about returning to the good old days of seniority and the seven dwarves which was like the name of the senior public servants that used to run the country 
country who were all quite short and no one could ever agree exactly who the seven Unlike us because we're very tall. That's right. I'm very tall. I'm so tall. Um, It's not about that. It's about, once again, reaffirming some principles, clearly introducing some new, like, legal guardrails. Yeah. And reconsidering this accountability framework. But that's a big ask for politicians to basically make this sort of Kev jail free card uh, no longer the get out of jail free card. You know, I mean, like a, like a really crystalline example of this is, you know, staff were often blamed in the last government for not telling their principal, the minister, the prime minister, about what happened with Brittany Higgins, for example, mm. you know, um, and that is that is and, and sports rods. And I mean, sports the, the colour coded so spreadsheet exactly. was denied yeah. at Precisely. the prime ministerial office level, even though prime ministerial office staff were involved in it. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, I mean if it was we recall, just a debacle. Yeah, Bridget Archer, not Bridget Archer. My apologies. Um, um, Senator McKenzie lost her job because she accepted a donation from a gun club. Mm. Not because a of free sports membership, fraud. indeed. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, so um, you know, changing this dynamic would it would be would be really important. And just like like introducing a corruption in a body, like if you don't actually do a good job of setting it up, you might actually create more problems or not solve the original problem. So the best thing the government can do is to support efforts of Glenn Davis and and others, Andrew Podger, who you know works in our department, and, and others, to really shepherd through or to reinvigorate the ethos of a strong and independent public service that is capable of giving governments advice that they may not like, that may be politically inconvenient for them at that time, but which represents the best exactly. professional judgment about what is in the national interest. That's right. And, and the best public servants are all political, if you think about it, i.e., they are thinking about the political implications of decisions and anticipating political problems, but they're not like they're not partisans. They're not partisans, yeah. right? And you know, Sir Humphrey, um, he is all political, sometimes rather self-interested, but sometimes. Uh, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> but he's a caricature. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, um, like one of my favourite examples is uh, Henry Bland basically spent several years trying to convince Billy McMahon to remove the bar- the marriage bar from hiring women with who have gotten married in the APS, mm. right? Uh, you know, like it's quite clear that uh, people who actually have a lot of experience in running stuff can help politicians achieve their goals that align with ideology that are on a firm legal basis will work and actually spend money in a good way. Is yeah. that such a problem? Yeah, that's right. And 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 establishing that that highly skilled uh, honorable public service which you know really stresses that independence and which values the professionalism of its uh, of of its um you know, delivery of, its of expertise, that, of expertise yeah. uh, is um, yeah, absolutely critical. And, of course, it attracts people and you don't end up with them populating the offices of PwC and others as we see this kind of, you know. Uh, revolving door. This revolving door and this this kind of privatisation effectively of of that advice. And, and, the, and the scandal that has erupted there is absolutely shocking uh, and revelatory in terms of, of, a, of a process that I think many Australians would have been largely unaware of. 
Yeah. Uh, just the extent of these contracts. I mean, what was it in one year? There was $20.8 billion spent on consultancies. That's right. I mean, if you look at a long run, run graph, it really sort of seems to pick up in, yeah, the early 2000s and the, the amount we spend on consultancies is actually wholly consistent with the process that we sort of outlined at the beginning, right, this sort of shift in incentive structures and de-skilling of the public service, this sort of reducing the public service down. Mm. And over time, you've sort of seen a lack of, a, of an ability for the public service to bring in expertise because it's been so eroded through the efficiency dividend. Like we're, we're now talking, like, see, that's, that happened during the GFC, which was 2008. So we're talking, this is the effect of 15 years of efficiency dividend, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. and and a, a culture in a corporate that So we're now getting you know, the deficiency dividend. Precisely. Which is which is the cost of that lost capacity. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it's costing us a fortune. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Now you were raising one other issue, which was Ben the, Robert Smith, which mm. all goes to the, the stories are all linked. Like it, it yeah. goes to organizations. It goes know. to that and it also goes to the role of media and the capacity mm -hmm. of media to uncover these sorts of stories That's right. yeah. and, and the extent to which media companies are prepared to take those risks. Big financial investments involved in in long run investigations, of course, and then all those defamation risks exactly. that, that seem to uh, because come this, with them. This is a defamation case, right? Yeah, it's actually not a criminal trial. No. So, so why is this a significant case, Mark? What does it mean for the media? Well, it. it I think the, the the best way of describing it is to think about what where we would be had it gone the other way, right? Because this was a very long run investigation by by Fairfax at the time, uh, where I, where I used to work was working there indeed at the time, um, and uh, it involved, as I say, all those sorts of decisions, and it involved taking on a a, a kind of a national myth. Mm. Being prepared to call out this myth of Ben Robert Smith and the and the sort of um, peerless and uh, sort of morally unimpeachable SAS and our you know what's done under our flag in our uniform all that stuff that you know people get misty eyed about uh, and this story challenged all that when when word came that there was another side to this that uh, appalling acts had had gone on mm. uh, and um, so if we think about think about it in those terms and then imagine what would have happened had the defamation case been upheld um, that, that Ben Robert Smith had won the case. And that has been, we need to remember, largely the way defamation cases have gone in this country. Mm. Federal court particularly, but courts generally have tended to favour the, the claimant, have tended to side with the person of, of reputation and, and agree that their reputation had been sullied by a particular story, that they'd had hurt feelings, that they'd suffered material damage from a story. And courts have tended to side with them rather than with media, with you yeah. know, big bad media who are sensationalising things or victimising some person, ruined someone's life. Which is fine, except that it's been it's that 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 process has you know I mean those things can be there those those that hurt can be there that reputational damage can be there but if you're damaged your reputation is damaged by the revelation of facts mm. that should not be a defamation case and that's what the federal court has found here and Justice Basenko's ruling uh, is a landmark in in this it 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 it's almost come at that sort of last gasp moment for. Um, for investigative journalism, I think, because had it gone the other way, the message would have been: do not 
do not get involved in these stories. I mean, the costs are said to be somewhere between $25 and $30 million My in this God. case. Uh, and they will be awarded largely against the, the, the loser, which mm. is Ben Robert Smith and his financial backers, Kerry Stokes and others. Mm. Um, and but, but nonetheless, Nine Media, which now owns those mastheads, um, except for the Canberra Times, which was the third of the, of the mastheads named, uh, they won't get all that money. They won't recover all of their costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Matt Collins, who we've had on this podcast, uh, arguably Australia's leading um, expert on defamation, makes the point that the uh, even when you're awarded costs in these cases, you, you never end up with getting 100% recompense. It's more likely somewhere between two-thirds and, and three-quarters yeah, uh, right. that you get. So th- it's likely that nine will be million or millions of dollars still out of pocket as a result of this, but um, they live to fight another day, and I think it's a, been a real shot in the arm for journalism in that sense. And I'll make this final point about mm. it. It won, that is, nine successfully defended itself in this case with the journalism. The journalism that was done by Nick McKenzie and Chris Masters was so rigorous and the sources, the well-corroborated evidence and the sources, many of whom, most of whom gave evidence in the proceeding, were able to convince the court in the same way they were able to convince the journalists of the veracity of their testimony. It was that which absolutely destroyed Ben Robert Smith's reputation. It, it was his act and the the people around whom uh, those acts occurred who witnessed it, some of them his own colleagues who called it out and the court found that he was an unreliable witness and um, and that so were a number of his witnesses on his side. Um, and people needn't worry about the defamation of that. That's the decision of the court. Yeah. Right? And and I know a lot of people say, oh, it's not a criminal court. Yeah, but it's a federal court. Uh, Justice Pasanko is highly regarded, a very thorough jurist, and um, it's a it's a very robust decision. And I would imagine that uh, that criminal proceedings are not far away. Yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, I don't really understand defamation law at all. But like, what's the prospect of an appeal? Is that the kind of thing that happens in these cases? Oh uh, well, I think they're looking at it. Um, it's uh, it depends how much more money they want to plow into it, and and I guess how much money they would want to lose because the chances on appeal are not good. Right. Um, uh, this is a very rigorous judgment. It's a very thorough judgment. It, there's there's a lot of it that's been withheld for national security reasons. The decision, the, the reasons for the decision, which was handed down last Thursday, were, uh, you know, were only uh, revealed yesterday because the Commonwealth needed time to look at the any p- possible national security implications, even of the bit that was going to be released publicly. That's now been released. Uh, it, as I say, it shows up Ben Robert Smith or the Ju- Justice Pasenko's conclusion that he was not a reliable witness. Basically, that means he was lying, mm. uh, and so were a number of others. There, there are there are other criminal possibilities that could arise from this because he talks in the judgment about um, intimidation of witnesses, using a postal or other service to 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 threaten people who were going to testify against him and so forth, right. um, or at least people acting on his behalf. Uh, these things uh, are all um, are all possibilities, and um, yeah, they might decide they want to put some more millions on the line in an appeal, um, and it will be interesting to see whether that has implications for decisions about possible criminal proceedings. But um, uh, it's a um, it's it's a hard day for Australia in a sense, and a hard day for the defence forces. But I would say this to everyone who is 
confronted by the pricking of this enormous legend, think about the other people, the other the other SAS members, the other people in the Australian Defence Forces who for a long time have been aware of these things and who have had the courage to speak up about it. And we don't know their names. Their names were withheld in the proceedings, but they deserve our praise and our gratitude for being prepared to speak up, speak up against a culture that facilitated acts that are profoundly dishonourable, immoral and illegal. Yeah, it's one thing to stand up to one person, but it's actually a whole other brave act to stand up against a system. Yeah, a culture and a system, absolutely. And, um, yeah, so it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's a pretty amazing moment and, um, yeah, we'll see where it goes from here, I guess. We're living at a, a, a reckoning point in our history, I think. That's very well said. So that's it for Democracy Sausage this week. Thanks, Mary. It's been good just the two of us having a bit of a chat, uh, you know, without, um, uh, you know, just being able to have a get into a few of these issues in a different way. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's been fun, um, I guess, yeah, not having to worry about being interrupting other people. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. We could just interrupt each other. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Terrific. Well, thank you for being with us again on another Democracy Sausage uh, from the ANU, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Until then, bye for now. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.